exactly. Uh, after a song of praise for Stonehead from Tarkin, Meryl is more than happy to get some real sleep. Uh, Tarkin, meanwhile, tries to suss out the rest of the riddle warning with the less-than-helpful Stonehead. Although, Stonehead does realize where they need to start the next leg of their journey, the Swamp Dark. He'll take them in the morning. For now, it's silence and sleep time. And Tarkin listens for once after being threatened to have a leg ripped off. <laughs> like, literally, it's a case of, um... Uh, you're quite a good singer. Never had time for such nonsense myself. Sooner have a good clean fight. Must warn you, though, if you start warbling and wake up my wife up, she'll probably rip your leg clean off. She's not called, or she's not named Thunderbeak for nothing, you know. Sleep well. Good night. Almost like they kill you in the morning. Oh, <laughs> no, that's not in there. Um, Tarquin put his hair carefully aside and lay down, gazing out, gazing around at the dark, dripping forest and the six savage owls in slumber. Blow me. Never taken, never... I'd never take Hon Rosie picnic into this place. What's that, Rabbit? Did you say something? Eh, no, old Bean. Just good night. Good night. Now shut up or sleep, or else. We also like you didn't put it in here, but the the four little owl chicks are just constantly fighting with each yeah. other. Yeah, yeah. They get like like uh, when Tarkin is doing the song, they're like falling asleep, and like Thunderbeak like cuffs them, like wake up while the nice hair is singing a song. Yeah, <laughs> they're just like no, no, no. It's fine. They definitely need their sleep, just like we do. Yeah, just let, let the babies rest. It's okay. Let them sleep. These little goblin-looking creatures. These horrible little goblin critter, goblin babies, because uh, barn owl chicks look like demon spawn. There's a reason that barn owls are often blamed for inspiring the creation of cryptids. Because you yeah. see that, yeah. Like, one of my, there's a, a running joke in the cryptic community that every cryptid is actually either a whale carcass or a barn owl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, we see Gabool. And Gabool has pretty much surpassed the need for sleep, driven by manic energy. He mutters plans on how to torture Greypatch. And we learn of a mysterious creature that he and Greypatch had caught and trapped in the dungeons below. He tells this creature, named Scrablag, that soon he'll be feeding Greypatch to him. Uh, Kit put a note in here that it is likely a scorpion. I think it's a crab, but it might be a scorpion. Who it knows? Would... We'll find out later, probably. You know what would be cool, though, if, like, if it was like a coconut crab or something? That'd be horrifying. Those things are huge. Exactly. Because, like, I think it's a scorpion because of the way it's des it's described as, like, scrabbling and the clicking, like, the clicking of a pincher's. And they describe it as, like, being caught from, like, a faraway island or something like that. Like a worm um, island. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Like, because where they're keeping it is, like, he goes down into the dungeons and there's, like, this room that just has, like, a, a, a pit covered with a stone. Mm -hmm. And he, like, levers the stone up and, like, pokes a... Uh, um, a spear down into it, like, wake up, wake up, hello. Yeah, and it just, it grabs the, <laughs> it grabs the spear and he, like, tugs it out, like, eh, eh. Yeah. Uh, uh, and it doesn't uh. say anything, we just hear the clicking and the scrabbling sounds. Yeah. So, it's, I, I think it's a scorpion. I, I put my bets on scorpion. It could be, who knows. Uh, after this, he goes to his dining hall, mocking the bell for being dirty. Uh, and how one day it'll ring when he wants it to. Now, he does slip into a fitful nightmare in his dining hall. He sees the moored and destroyed ships and the bodies of his dead captains. And as always, 
the vision of an armored badger arriving to strike him with a great sword. And as always, he's awoken by the bell ringing out. It's a good end of the chapter right there. Yep. Uh, Greypatch welcomes his crew, not too bothered by the fate of the Dark Queen. He knows uh, Redwall is where they can live on the fat of the land now, without fear of Gabool. And, and he says, like, we can live like gentle rats here. Which is, it's... I, there's so many little things in these books that makes you think, like, where are the kingdoms? Where are the big communities outside of Redwall or Loam Hedge? Like, we know there are little villages, like the Voles often have little villages. You'll have, like... The Otters. The Otters. You'll have, like, little strings of communities. Like, I know there's, like, in one of the later books, there's, like, these hedgehogs who live out, like in Mossflower because they have, like, a family feud with another family that lives down the way from them. The squirrels. And it's like, I like the Redwall world, but it it feels like a puppet show. Yeah, like, it's a puppet show. It's this little, this little terrarium of a strange society that has popped up that is, like, it's built on these things that should be there but aren't. And they're made obvious in their absence of, like, where are the communities that make so many of these resources that they cannot make in the Abbey? Um, And I don't think it's a bad thing because these are, again, these are books for kids. And I didn't really think about this when I read it in high school um, because I was just enjoying the book. But like, as I'm older and like, I've learned more about world building, about writing and characters and and developing a solid, you know, base for your world to be built off of. Um, it does make me a little sad that we don't get to see like a more developed yeah. world where like there's actual strong connections between places other than I vaguely think, um, implied ones. I think to make a comparison with another book series. So I think that even if we didn't think about it as a kid, we probably like on some level still noticed it mm-hmm. um, because uh, compare this to the Animorphs books. Yeah. The Animorphs books, yes, they are set in our world, but we still have these connections. There are things happening in the world outside of these kids. We see that. They aren't just a puppet show. They don't exist in a terrarium. Mm -hmm. There's lives and things happening around them. There's a world that they have to interact with that interacts with them. There's Mm -hmm. a whole universe that does that. Mm -hmm. But in Redwall, it's just this really small space. And there's there's always these allusions to other places, but it's almost like something like Redwall Abbey and Lomehedge is just very rare in this world. Mm-hmm. Uh, everywhere we've seen some place that has multiple species of animals, besides Redwall and Lomehedge, it's been vermin and villains. Mm-hmm. Like where they've taken these creatures from their homes and forced them together. Exactly. Uh, or it's badgers and hares, but I think Salamandastron is one of a kind, you know? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Well, there was uh, also Brian... the bat colony, which we never get to see again. Yeah, that's that's a one-off. And yeah. they're bats. Bats live in colonies like that. Yeah. So that one makes sense. Yeah. Uh, Brian definitely feels like he was more character and mythos-focused than world-building-focused. Yeah. Uh, and, like, there is world-building! It's there! But it's so shallow. It's like going into the reedy shallows of a pond. I love that I want... analogy, by the way. Thank you. Uh, I want to know more about the world, and I want Redwall to have more connections to the rest of the world. Like, if I could sit and make, like, connections to all these other places, like, that is a thing that is, like, 
I overthink my world building because I love shit like that. Yeah. Well, like, I'm, Constantly. I'm also, like, I'm part of, like, like sometimes my world building is just, like, I want to put it in there because it's fun for certain worlds, but other worlds is, like, yeah. all right, if I'm going to have a desert here, I have to explain why the desert is here. So, okay, well, now, obviously, there needs to be a mountain range nearby, so the mountain range creates a, a rain shadow, but that means there's got to be, like, there's probably a population on the other side of that mountain range that has a lot of, you know, like, uh, temperate forests and things like that because they're getting all the rain that the desert isn't getting mm-hmm. and then like it, it mm-hmm. goes from there and there from like mm-hmm. the stuff that I know mm-hmm. about our world and mm-hmm. it's just you know like like things us with the land reason. whispers <laughs> 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 trying to connect it back to old Terra yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh my god <laughs> we are world builders at heart we love world building we do we like-, like putting things in worlds just because we can but then we sit there and we're like okay but why is this here Okay, well, like, and how right. does it affect the world around them? One of my favorite <laughs> genres is speculative biology. Same. And if you want to find, there's a, a a person on Twitter. I can't remember the pronouns, so I'm just gonna say a person for the moment. Um, Jay Rockin, and they have an entire fuck man, an entire. It's called Run Runaway of... to the Stars. They've got That's like. So good. They've got like three species of aliens that are so well defined. And this world building is so detailed. Like, the, like most of these species can't eat food from Earth, and we can't eat food from their planet because they evolved from a different chain of events than we did. And just, like, all these little details. How do these species coexist in space? Like, different ways to communicate with each other. Different things, like, they have different spectrums of light. So sometimes they'll see things we can't. And, oh, it's very good. Like, if you want to read some good speculative biology, look up Runaway to the Stars. Definitely an inspiration for a lot of my speculative biology. Oh, yeah, definitely, like, hands down. Like, part of me is just like, I want to really create something now. My brain just keeps, like, chewing over, like, what I want to do. It's like me yeah. looking at, like, eyeballing Jake. You might be getting an overhaul soon, sir. No, no. <laughs> In a good way. Yeah. Uh, all right. So, moving on from that. <laughs> uh, Grey Patch's crew is happy to fall back under his lead. Uh... This is also where I realized that this part of the book is so fucking short. Yeah, it's like it works on a really good clip. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he lays out a three-pronged attack. Big Fang with the ore slaves up front trying to burn the gate, you know, his original plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Greypatch and some of the crew to the side in the ditch slinging f- stones and firing arrows. Kaiba with the rest will go to the east side and sneak op- up and over the walls to open the northern gate. Like Redwall is a tall, fat merchant ship. Me reading that. From where? Where are the merchant ships coming from? And who are they Again, going to? Again, that disconnect from the rest of the world. And who are they going to? Who's buying the things from the merchants? Exactly. There's where no, are we? There's no... England just, like... In this world, Redwall's just on this weird little island that people leave alone because weird shit happens there. <laughs> it's like, it's like, a, it's oh, you like, mean England? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Literally, it's like this is like this is like England post Rome, where nobody wants to touch it because everything's falling apart. <laughs> God, yeah. Anyway, yeah. One way or another, he declares that they will be eating dinner in Redwall that night. Uh, Big Fang feels tricked somehow, but he can't say boo due to his disgraced status. He has to keep his mouth shut. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, he is definitely going to die. Uh, the Redwallers, of course, are eating out in the orchard because their uh, uh, whole routine has been disrupted. 
uh, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Red Wallers eat on the orchard, and the abbot is giving the Dibbons a lecture during the meal, or he's trying to. Yeah. The Dibbons are swiping and stealing each other's food and drinks. They have to get scolded by Formal about it. They start distracting the abbot with silly questions, and they're just, they're being little kids. Uh, Simeon comes to the rescue and silences the Dibbons with a dire warning that the Grockledy Boo eats noisy Dibbons! <laughs> you kept spelling Dibbons as Dubbins. Bother me? I. Mm. You did it twice. In the U sentence. is right next to the I in my defense, and I was typing. Dubbins. 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 Saf. Saf. Buddha. With silence restored, he takes up the lecture. He reinforces what the abbot had tried to say earlier. Bad beasts are about, and they have to listen to and obey everything the adults tell them. No going on the wall tops. No trying to sneak out. It's for their safety. With a course of ascent, the Dibbons are freed to finish their meal. We shift over to Flag and Saxtus. Both feel the peace is only the calm before the storm and keep a vigilant watch. And I really like that that is like the last sentence. Like they, they feel as though this is a calm before the storm because immediately after this, yeah, we shift to Mariel and Co. You know, the storm. <laughs> Again, like, this book is so tightly put together. It is so very satisfying. Brian had an editor. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Marilyn Dandon fret as half the morning goes by, but they can't leave as Stonehead's wife, Thunderbeak, is being so kind as to refill their provisions. Like, she insisted. Uh, They Mm -hmm. barely avoid being dragged into wrestling with the owl chicks uh, and still get a few (laughs) pecks as they're given their refilled nap snacks. Nap sacks. Nap snacks. Nap and snacks. head out. I mean, you're, you're not wrong. Nap snacks. Uh, this is where I pointed out that the, the owl chicks have to be ugly as sin. Uh, barn owl right. babies are ugly little cusses. They really do look like little goblins. <laughs> have you ever seen like, that video of, fish. like, the four owl chicks and they're just, like, moving their heads in that really weird way and hissing? And that one in the background is, like, gulping down a rat. Yeah. Those are barn owl chicks. Yeah. Awful little creatures. They're, and they, they shriek. Barn owls don't do the nice pretty huge. They 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 scream. I used to have one who liked to scream out my window back in Clovis. Jesus. If it weren't the barn owls, it was the foxes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as they People m- say the country's quiet. Bullshit. <laughs> as they move further into the oppressive forest, Tarkin tries to strike up a ditty to banish the silence. Only to falter when Stonehead asks him, must he make that noise? Stonehead warns that they're in bad country. They want to avoid attention. Uh, Tarkin drops back and he and Dury complain quietly together. I don't like Tarkin in this bit. Tarkin is Mm-mm. a little shit. I don't he like is. him. He's spoiled. The worst. Not to mention that they start bitching about the scones that... um. Uh, Thunderbeak made. Yeah, but that's after Stonehead leaves. That's true. Soon enough, they reach Swamp Dark, and Stonehead gives his abrupt goodbye. He does not go into the Swamp Dark. Uh, they choose a spot to sit and eat lunch, uh, but are distracted by the sudden oppression of the murky land before them. Uh, Brian describes the swamp very as though it is, like, evil and ugly and bad, and it's like, sir, have you ever been in a swamp? <laughs> like, swamp, yes, like- the, there are some swamps that are just awful those are the ones that don't have flowing water in them 
Mm-hmm. And that like might be swamps, this one. Absolutely. Swamps are absolutely dangerous. Like, you definitely need to respect swamps, even the pretty ones. But swamps can be pretty, too. I, I just put, like, literally, I put, Brian, swamps can be pretty, too, with the sad face. <laughs> it, it is, though, one of those classic literary tropes. The swamp is the dank, deary, dreary place that the, the heroes go and bad things happen, you know? Yeah. So. It happens all I the time. I don't blame him for using it, but. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> Yeah, they they bolster yeah. their spirits with good food, a warm fire, and a little pipe music from Dandan, because Dandan's uh uh flute survived. Uh, yeah. you know the one that is supposedly Gonf's. Uh, they are being watched from inside the swamp, though, and I really love the imagery right there. <laughs> Hot food, a glowing fire, and merry music lifted the spirits of the travelers. Even the blinking eyes that watched them from the dark swamp stopped winking and stayed open, stayed wide open with fascination. I'm going to start over because my body was like, you're going to burp halfway <laughs> through that. Hot food, a glowing fire, and merry music lifted the spirits of the travelers. Even the blinking eyes that watched them from the dark swamp stopped winking and stayed wide open with fascination as they awaited the travelers' next move into their miry world. Like, that's just good fucking imagery. Also, like, it's definitely gotta be, like, the toads or the frogs who are watching them, because lizards can't blink. Shh. And yes, I'm also gonna bitch about something else he did with the lizard's anatomy later on. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Maybe they, maybe they were licking their eyeballs. Through, through gritted teeth, it's a fantasy story. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, three hares return from patrol and realize that something isn't right. Ronblade has scored the rocks with his bare claws, and they know this means that the blood wrath has come upon him. We, I have to point out, Kit, you gotta spell blood wrath with the capital B. I'm sorry. It's, I didn't they, give it the right M. They say it with a capital B. Okay. It's, it's, it's blood wrath. Base boosted blood wrath. <laughs> All right, you, can you base boost? You need to do it now. Oh God, blood wrath! Blood wrath! <laughs> uh, they go to find him, but remember that they must use caution. Ronblade is a danger to foe and friend at the moment because in the blood wrath, uh, he could strike out at anybody. Because eh. it's a berserker rage, yeah. and I find it interesting how it's like it's almost treated like um, a mental illness, which, you know what, it kind of is. This is probably like a form of PTSD in a sense, question mark, because of what happened to his rabbits and it just triggers as rage, question mark. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So the trio of hares come across the carnage of Ron Blade's blood wrath, over a hundred mauled and dead sea rats floating in the water and laid out upon the beach. But the ship is gone? Uh, they find one rat slipping from life who tells them what happened. He tells of how they tried to repair the ship, how Ronblade had risen from the water like some great devil, slaying them with terrifying ease, how he shouted the name of three hares, one of whom was is the father to Fleetleg, one of the three hares there. The rat dies with his eyes open, terror still on his face. Do we fucking get another mention of Hellgates here rather than the Dark Forest? So I'm trying to figure yeah. out if Brian has just completely shifted that narrative. It seems like it. I, I, I know he brings it back later. 
I know the Dark Forest comes back later because it, it, it sounds... Well, we also still have Martin the Warrior to go to. We do. As well as Lone Hedge. Might, yeah. It might be a case of, like, it fell out of popularity later on in time, as things do. Yeah. As myths and legends and, and religions shift. Who knows? Not us. <laughs> out to sea, the wave blade follows whatever wind or current catches her. Ronblade sleeps deeply, still wearing his armor, freed of the blood wrath for the moment. He capitalized yeah, blood wrath there. there. <laughs> <laughs> also, <laughs> the fucking chapter art for the next chapter, and it's a hedgehog. With just his... You know what this makes me think of? You stop that. <laughs> you stop that you stop that it's a hedgehog just... and he's just got a, like a spear in one hand and he's pointing with the other hand and he's got these big gloves on but he's just he's got such a big hands. hands it's just giant man hands it really looks like a fucking oh i just yawned sorry it looks like a fucking uh like one of the little weird animated puppets from monty python skits yes and again, like, if the artist who drew these ever by some infinitesimal chance actually listens, we do genuinely love your art. We are artists ourselves, and we do make fun of our own bad art on occasion when we- Not that this art is art. bad. This but is just very funny. It's not- Yes. It's, it's still very good. We just find it very amusing. The, the attitude here, it, it's a good vibe. Okay. It is very good. <laughs> so that evening- You this, stop that. This... God. That evening, the sleepy wall defenders spot the incoming torches of the sea rat horde. Roofbrush catches on right away and sounds the alarm. He goes and he hits the big log and it goes thonka 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 thonk. And I said, that sure sounds like laga 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 laga. It do. It do. At the sound of the alarm, Graypatch sends off the hook and grapple group. Uh, he laughs mockingly at Big Fang. After all, he was only having the belligerent upstart do what he wanted to. And he's right, though. Yeah. Big Fang knows he's been sent on a suicide mission. Only a few sea rats and the rest of the ore slaves are with him. He knows he's set up to be killed, but with no other choice, he presses on. Uh, the defenders are ranged up along the wall with makeshift weapons. Spears of you, stones, some old antique weapons. They're nervous, but Melis does her best to keep their spirits up. I, and I do like how Brian is pointing out, like, this is one of the weaknesses of the Abbey. It's a safe place. It's a place that is not for war. And, of course, they wouldn't have a lot of weapons to hand. It's been generations since, you know, they've last had to fight a war. So it makes sense that this is a, a place of safety and peace. So they have to make do with what they have. And then Izzy points out that they call these ancient. And I'm like, shit, you're right, Brian. Your sense of time scale is whack. Like, like you're you're trying to make it all like oh this is still a young abbey but also they have ancient weapons. It's been six mm -hmm. generations. Six generations at of, a minimum of mice of mice. So uh. and if mice, because like we know that like badgers live a lot longer than mice do. Like how many generations did Constance see before she finally went? I like I think Constance sees. Constance like, at least, was like, already old in Redwall. Yeah. So she was so, like, older in Madame Mayo. I think, like, the implication is that, like, Constance, like, her one lifespan, like, constituted, like, four generations of mice alone. Like, the sense of time in Redwall is wibbly-wobbly to the extreme. Not even in a fun timey-wimey sense. No, just in 
he doesn't, again, like, this is back to the world building. He's never really nailed down, like, how anything works for, like, how long certain creatures live compared to others and how time actually works. Like, the, their naming conventions also very conveniently sidesteps actually putting down concrete years. Which, again, like, I actually do admire Brian for this because it's a good way for him to avoid trying to, like, date any of this. Yeah. Because for him, the dates don't matter. Yeah. It's just, it, it just needs to be vaguely enough connected. And by the naming convention of the different seasons, like the season of the late, like the season of the return of the warrior, stuff like that, he's avoiding having to create a, um, you know, like a Gregorian calendar system, essentially, <clears throat> in a world where Gregor, you know, didn't exist. So. Yeah. Or the Gregorians, whatever. Even though the monks are ostensibly sort of Gregorian, but we're not going to get into it. Whew, I keep yawning. Also, I just realized that my uh, <laughs> microphone volume is very, very high. Uh-oh. Down just a little bit. Uh, there's a brief moment of silence as the rats look at the defenders. Saxtus asks what they want, and Greypatch answers that they want the Abbey. Won't they surrender and take it easy on all of them? Uh, Saxus says no with emphasis, and Greypatch calls for the attack to start. Uh, the torchbearers are literally almost immediately beaten back. Uh, they're just- Big Fang is knocked silly. Uh, another rat, though, is lucky enough to get a torch against the gate in just the right place. Uh, Flood tries to put it out, but he trips over a traumatized Saxus, who is inconsolable in the fact that he just killed another living creature. Um, <laughs> I, uh, yeah. what, that, that emphasis- <laughs> Was Saxus throwing a spear at Greypatch, and Greypatch dodged out of the way, and the spear just struck another rat right through. Yeah, it, it it literally just kills this rat on the spot. And, like, I like this, I like his response, because this is a creature who has been raised to be peaceful. It's his job to heal and protect. And he's still a kid, like... Saxus is still very he's the same age as Danden. They're kids. They're just barely out of being considered like little Dibbons. They're old enough to help with the kids, but not old enough to be adults. And here he's just killed his first living creature, so of course he's traumatized. This goes against everything he's been raised to believe. And um I I do like the little pep talk Flug gives him too, because he's not he doesn't shame him for for this trauma. Yeah. Like, he, he, he sends Melis to deal with the yeah. gate fire, because he was going to deal with it, but, you know, uh, he tripped over Saxus. Uh, he picks Saxus up, reminds him of why they're doing the killing. He's protecting all of Redwall right down to the Dibbons and dormitories, and the rats would kill them all if they got in. And this, like, bolsters Saxus, so he takes up his sling and uh, gets right back to it. Basically, compartmentalizing this very traumatizing experience. Right. Which is, you know, it's what you have to do in a situation like this. Yeah. And <laughs> to bring up Animorphs again. <laughs> at least at least this time around, uh, Sax just has people he can talk to afterwards, whereas the kids don't. <laughs> Therapy for the Animorphs? It's less likely than you think. Yeah. At the end of the series, should we get therapy? Nah, let's steal a ship and go off into space. Oh, I... Wait, shit. Uh... Fuck. Spoilers. Well, not no. I'm gonna pretend. To, nope. Don't. Nope. Do not continue. Anyway, <laughs> delete that. Sorry, How could you me. do this to me? I'm sorry. Ah! It's vague. It's vague. You'll forget about it. Don't worry about it. 
I mean, I kind of figured that they'd end up doing that anyway, but you know. Well, they, they definitely don't get um don't nope. therapy. Nah. That's not a spoiler. So, nah. Izzy, look me in the eye and Shut do you your really fucking think- mouth. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Melis and the th- and three moles manage to damp the fire down with a combo of water and dirt. Inside, grub bag and run. <laughs> Reading their names all in a row like that is like grab bag run. Right. <laughs> they manage he- to escape the dormitory and they decide to play hero. Uh they raid the kitchen for weapons and they get uh the 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 fire's good vegetable cutting knives. Uh and with the typical stupid good luck of the Dibbins, they happen to be in the right place at the right time with the right tool. They see the grapnels hooking over the wall and take the great kitchen knives that they'd swiped and start cutting. And again, I make a joke about would this count as a deus ex divina? But I feel there's a bit of a stretch since the little sneaks, still little stinks sneaking out is well and firmly established. Yeah, like, it's just this a, is not a, a deus a ex, crowning but it's moment just, of awesome for the divins. For the, yeah, I mean, they're just they're just killing people. <laughs> it's okay. I d- listen, they don't know. I don't think not they yet. Uh, like they're young enough they don't we, we talk we'll talk about yeah, yeah, yeah. uh kaibo is almost t- to the top until his rope snaps and he's sent hurtling into space left and right ropes snap and the pirates fall three divins are having a wicked gleeful time cutting the ropes their knives making short work of them it just takes three cuts for the thickest rope one two three and like brian definitely seems like more bloody-minded in this book because it's like we have Ron Blade with his blood wrath. You've got these Dibbons who are, they're killing people and giggling while they're doing it. Because, like, they don't have a real concept of death yet. No. To them, it's just the bad guys go away and they don't come back. So it's, it's not a, a bad thing. Yeah. And, like, even, like, when they talk and brag about it later, they're just like, hee hee hoo hoo. Oh, we killed dozens of them. We killed hundreds of them. You know, they don't know what they're doing. No, they don't. The, the consequences don't exist. Not yet. Uh, they'll I'm realize just, like, when for... they're older, but they're still not going to have that same reaction because they didn't realize in the moment. Mm-hmm. They're just going to be like, huh, that was fucked up, huh? Anyway. Yeah. Uh, Greypatch realizes his mistake as he and his crew get chased down into the ditch. Uh, the Redwallers' aim is good, and they have more supplies. The Ore Slaves are all running wild, trying to escape. Uh, and he does not yet know that the grapple crew failed, and when questioned about it, sends the rat who questioned him about it to see what's taking them so long. He also sends two other rats to get Big Fang off of the road because he is still knocked the fuck out. Mm-hmm. Uh, Saxus and Melis check in with each other, all the while pondering the small number of vermin- Vermin? <laughs> vermin? Vermin! You typoed vermin as vermin. I did. <laughs> uh... The, that they seem to be fighting. Where's the rest of them? And then they notice the Dibbins! <laughs> They're like, what the fuck are you doing here? Swoop down on them in a protective fury. The Dibbins get scolded, but the scolding stops when the adults see the grapple hooks. And then the carnage that's on the other side of the wall. Half a dozen rats dead, and the others are broken and bruised in a very bad way. Uh, they thank the trio for saving the abbey and take them off of the wall to properly put them to bed. Yeah. And then there's this cute little, like, um, so there's this moment where, um, it's, a uh, let's see. Graf- Saxus laughed loud at the, hang on, there we go. 
Upwards of half a dozen sea rats had been killed by the fall, impaled on broken branches or crushed by their fallen comrades. The rest lay about in a pitiful state, moaning as they nursed broken and aching limbs. Flag scratched his whiskers in disbelief. Well, give me fins and call me a fish. So that's what the rest of the pesky vermin were up to. Grub shook his furry head. Not oop, meister. Only half, halfway oop. Saxus laughed aloud at the joke, but his merriment withered under Melissa's icy stare. Flag, however, was shaking paws, hugging and patting the three divins. Well done, fellers. Strike me. You save the abbey and no mistake. But I love Grub just being like, not oop, meister. Only halfway oop. <laughs> Grub, I love Grub. Grub, Grub is like, it just calls, he, he calls himself Murthany Warrior. Murthany Warrior, that be oi. Okay. Uh, my comment was, him be Murthany Warrior, he be. <laughs> Uh, Grey Patch uh, uses Packetug as a hostage, demanding that they call a truce and let them back away. Uh, the Red Wallers are happy enough to do so, and even quip that he didn't need to threaten the squirrel. Uh, he could have just left at any time. And I, I snarkily put, well, kill him, he's not our man. Because <laughs> I don't like Packetug. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he tries one more ominous parting threat and is rebuffed pretty soundly by Simeon. <laughs> Simeon goes for a cliche thing, but I think at the time it was less cliche than it is now. If you would like to read it. Yes. You already had the book open. How did you already close I it? Did, I did. Listen. How did, how, okay. how have you done this? I can't believe I've done this. Uh, Simeon turned his head in the direction of Grey Patch's voice. Alas, I will never see anything for I am blind. But I can sense a lot. I can feel you are both evil and desperate. They say you have only one eye. I am surprised at you. Even a fool with half an eye should see that you will never triumph against good if you are evil. And I do a little tiny little bit of snark of like, that's the the cliche bit that I'm kind of like, hmm. Meh. Meh. But it is nice. Yeah. It's, it's well placed is the thing. Like, it doesn't feel yeah. cliche in the moment. Yeah. Because it's well placed. Uh, yeah. So next chapter, back with Mariel and Co. Uh, there's a little bit of symbolism in the chapter art that I really like. Uh, <laughs> it, it, I don't think it's meant to be like symbolism, symbolism, because it is literally just a scene that happens. But mm -hmm. you know, yeah, yeah, it's pretty. Anyway, uh, so back with Mariel and Co. They walk along the raised stone paths that they can find. Uh, bubbles of gas reveal that the land around them is a mire. And I'm going to fucking fight you. Falling in would be dire. <laughs> Don't you snicker at me! I love you! I love you too! Don't you snicker at me, you heathen! <laughs> As they ponder what to watch for, the wart-skinned toad, uh, they also see the next part of the rhyme, a glowing light which the rhyme warns them not to follow. It's I... It's a will-o'-the-wisp. Yeah, it just, the line says, beware the light that shows the way. Yep. Uh, Meryl has the other three lay down and sneaks forward to get a better look at it. Uh, and it's, it's like they can't see because it is so dark. They just hear like a, a croak, uh, mm -hmm. like a, a walloping sound, a, like a, like a distressed croaking sound. And they go to see what's up. And unsurprisingly, it's a toad. Meryl also has predictably walloped it into unconsciousness, and she steals its very cleverly crafted lantern. The lantern is made out of carved crystal, and is full of very fat fireflies, so it sets out a pretty decent amount of light. 
Mm-hmm. And I made the comment of points taken away from Brian describing the toad as exceptionally ugly, but points given for praising how the lantern is cleverly crafted. It's just a total wash. Yeah. Uh, It's like, at least they show that the toad does have skill in crafting, but... Yeah. Uh, The toad kind of wakes up and they're like, you're gonna take us out of this fucking swamp. And, like, the toad is like, yeah, sure. Okay. Okay. They threaten the toad, say, uh, and, like, they're like, you're gonna lead us out. Uh, But then he makes a break for it. Um, You know, Kit's like, they keep doing this and then are shocked when the threatened party betrays them. And I said, leopards eating my face party. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Like <laughs> It's not exactly like, oh, the yes. same, but the joke is there. Ah, uh, yes. We're going to threaten this creature with great bodily harm and then get mad at it when it decides no, forget this, and runs away. Like, why do you keep getting surprised when this happens? Would you? You wouldn't help a sea rat who was doing the same thing to you. Exactly. Uh, so the toad makes a break for it, and Dandon, uh, having made a grab for him, falls into the swamp. Uh, Dandan can't pull himself out because he's just being slowly sucked under because that's what happens. Uh, and it takes extremely a- distressing. Yeah. Uh, it takes a quiet voice whispering in Marielle's ear to get her to notice a branch above him. Uh, right before this, um, Tarkin did throw his Harolina, uh, at Dandan so that Dandan could use it to try and stay afloat. And it helped. Yeah. A little. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, he still threw his most prized possession into the muck to save a friend. Mm-hmm. So, you know. Yeah, like, like this is, like, one of the moments where Dandon does get, a, like, again, like, he has these good moments of redemption that makes him... You mean him Tarkin, not Dandon. Tarkin. Tarquin. Dandon, Tarquin, in, in, in. Um, like, Tarquin does have these moments where he is not redeemed, but it's shown that why he's there, he is a useful party member, etc. He's the, the useless bard, who's not always useless. Anyway. You spoony bard. <laughs> uh, with the aid of the other two and the gullwhacker, she's able to get the rope around, like, his paws. Uh, and then uses, like, basically, like, as a, a, a fun fulcrum to use the branch to pull him back out of the mud. Hold on, I have to sneeze. Bless you. Maybe? I said I had to sneeze and then it went away. <laughs> Uh, I said, bless you. I chased it away. You did. You chased it away. Uh, what happens is is that Mariel gets the three of them onto the branch to lower it down as far as possible. Gets the gullwhacker, like, uh, noosed around Dandan's paw, like, uh, paws, which are still sticking up above the mud. Uh, and then tells, like, everybody get off of the branch. And they get off and it flings, like, flings upward and just, shloop, po- pops Dandan back out of the muck. And he is, like, yeah. unconscious covered in mud uh they help clean him off and stop to light a small fire and have a small meal uh after checking in with the other two Marilyn and Denon both realized that Martin had helped them uh and first pointing out the tree and then telling Denon to keep his paws up mm-hmm. and, and Kit and I had a mini discussion in the comments about how this could be like a deus ex like or a Chekhov sword and I'm like it's not really that it's it's just this is just how Martin is. Like, we already know that yeah. he does this because he did it in Redwall and he did it in Matameo. He just right. does this. But I mentioned it being like the, the Chekhov's thing is because, like, he is set up earlier in the book, like, like Martin is there with the kids in spirit. So he is set up as being there. Yeah, but um, with Chekhov's items, usually it's like, uh, like, we're not... A, a passing mention kind of a thing. Yeah, it's a passing mention and something where it's like, we don't really think about it anymore, but like... 
we mm-hmm. know that he's there and we know he's going to help them because that's what yeah. he does. So he's yeah. just he's he's a spirit guide. Yeah, pretty much. Uh um, now it's my turn again. <laughs> as they set up what? Oh, I'm mumbling, go ahead. Okay. Uh, we as... have a lot more left. You done? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. As they... As they set up to leave, Tarkin cleans the mud off of his Haralina, and, like, he's talking, and then turns to continue speaking to a frilled lizard who's next to him, and then freaks the fuck out and brains it with the Haralina. <laughs> and then Why they see 20... for braining characters in this book? Yeah. And then they see 20 or 30 more climbing up onto the path. Uh, they don't know what to do, because they are ba- like, there's just so many fucking lizards, like, frilled and, like, newts, and just so many, like, just lizards. Uh, mm-hmm. and it seems they have two options, stand and fight, or make a run for it. Tarkin tells them to pause, though. He swears he felt a breeze. He calls it a zephyr, and they're all like, what the fuck are you talking about? He's like, a zephyr, a breeze. Mm-hmm. The fuck? Do you not know English? And it's like, you little shit. Um, uh, Tarkin pushes past the bewildered lizards to climb a tree, and then pushes right back down through them. Uh, he can see the sea about two hours hike, he thinks. Uh, I like that the lizards, lizards are just like, what is he doing? Yeah, they're just like, what? what? Like, they're curious. Like, these lizards are not shown to be threatening at all at this point. There's just a butt ton of them. Yeah. Uh, more lizards are showing up now, though. Uh, Kit makes an angry comment that they don't have prehensile ta- tails. And I responded, quietly hides my possum persona behind my back and whistles. <laughs> do you want to, do you want to yell? Do you want to yell for a minute? Uh, <laughs> all right, I'm good. We've got more important things to talk about. It, uh, it, 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 it loose back, you know, like me snarking about like Friar. Uh, was that Hugo in the first couple books? Having a prehensile tail so he could hold yeah, the dandelion. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I know it, it's a common trope amongst kids media that anything with a tail can use it prehensilely. Exactly. Uh, the group is nervous. Uh, Mariel decides to try a, uh, a bluff, though. She borrows the sword, and she puts on the best swagger that she can, and threatens the lizards. She'll fight the best among them, and woe any lizard who tries to mess with them. Um, she even goes up to, like, the biggest lizard, is like, you seem big enough to be the chief, and lizards are just less than impressed, maybe even a little bit offended. Like, the one big one just kind of blinks at her, and then it's just like, yeah, nah. I'm not even gonna deal with it. They just turns around and goes away like, Yeah, they don't even, like, speak to them. They're just like, Okay. Uh, satisfied for the moment that they can move along, she stays to the back and keeps up the swagger, uh, ch- trying to not let her friends laugh too much at the outrageous performance. The two-hour trek ends in a sunny day and blue sky. Uh, the lizards, not but really bothered either way, keep watch over them or lay down to bask in the sun. They're just, they're just kind of, the lizards were just following them. They were curious. Yeah. They were like, like, hmm. <laughs> This like, is, if I these are weird four... things in our swamp that is probably fucking boring as shit. Yeah. And not just that, but, like, if I had four people show up, clobber one of my neighbors, then you, like, set a fire in a swamp full of gas, I'd want to keep an eye on them, too. Yeah. <laughs> and then they leave, and they're like, all right, you're gone now. Bye-bye. Yeah. We're in the, the, oh, look, the sun. Just time yeah. to languish. They do at one point, I think, uh, Dury calls them dragons. Yeah, he does. It's really cute. Um, yeah. it's it's right when the lizards first show up, uh, because he he goes, um, Dury threw up his paws in despair. 
Lackaday, what now? We've had stick legs, pipes, adders, flitch-eye, mad owls, a warty toad, and now this, dragons. My knuckle Gabe wouldn't believe a word if and I told him. More like he'd say that I had been drinking of his strong blackberry wine. Mariel, tell a poor lad who's far from home, what do we do now? <laughs> it's real good. Uh, so hurling unneeded insults as they leave, the group struts out towards the ocean, Tarkin singing a jolly little tune of his own making. Because they're fucking idiots. <laughs> yeah. I uh, wouldn't get I wouldn't go through the swamps no more, not for an abbot's feast. Not even for a kiss from Rosie, dear, though she's a lovely beast. Give me the summer sunshine, don't mind a cloud or two. Rather that than a bolly bog and a pot of lizards do. Yep. Uh so yep. another uh back at the Abbey, uh stung by their defeat, the pirate rats start to mutter again. Greypatch decides a swift strike will be his best bet. Uh he talks the crew into using fire swingers. Scraps of rope tied around a rock with other flammables and soaked in oil to be hurled over the walls. Big Fang tries to sass back, like, oh, didn't I already try using fire? Uh but Greypatch shuts him down pretty quick. Uh, the crew is reluctant at first, but after a reminder of the wealth inside of Redwall, it brings them back around. And it's like, A, a sock hey. puppet? Is that what you called him? A sock <laughs> yes. puppet? Yes, because I wanted a funny little insult. I said, how are you going to live out the fat of the land if you set it all on fire? And you colossal sock muppet, the Redwall Abbey is built from stone. Most you're going to burn down is some curtains and windows and doorways. Or the food you want to take. Sock like, you muppet. want to take... Sock Muppet. Yes. A colossal sock Muppet. Because it's like, yes, I want to live here. I want to live off the fat of the land. How am I going to get in there? Oh, I know. I'll burn everything down. Well, what are you going to eat when you get in there then? Genius. <laughs> I, I, it, it, all right. So I'm listening to the history of England or like the, a, the British history podcast. And we are just getting to... William the Bastard, a.k.a. William the Conqueror. And he talks about how, like, after the Battle of Hastings, where William went to take a fort, like, the fort had been locked up. And they were like, well, we don't want to get murdered like everyone else in these other two towns were. Okay, we're going to surrender. So what does William do? He lets his knight, his knights completely ravage the place. Well, like, almost burn it to the ground. So when they get in there, guess what? The water is fouled. There's no more food left. So this place that was supposed to be his sanctuary turns into a breeding pit of disease and despair. So they end up having to pack up and leave anyway because he was too thick to actually tell his knights, hey, maybe you should show a little restraint, even though we've got the Pope's excuse to do anything we want to murder, kill, and pillage because we're going to be forgiven by the Pope when we're all done because we're rightly returning England to God. Um, so, yeah. The Normans were a bunch of dumbasses. Anyway. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> the Norman chivalric culture was a joke and a bane upon educated society. Anyway. Yeah, your Norman knights that you love to read about so much in fiction, they were a bunch of dumbasses. They couldn't even read. <laughs> That's what nerds do. We're too noble. Our, our muscles are too bulging and strong. And we're too great and brave and brawny to do anything other than beat other people up and create a society of violence. Anyway. Uh, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> At Redwall, late morning brunch is being held. The morning has been filled with repairs and preparation for more attacks. 
and now the shared food and stories of the three hero Dibbins revive everyone. Bag, Run, and Grub tell greatly embellished stories of their defense of Redwall. Uh, the only being not pleased with the trio is the much-annoyed Friar Alder, with his prized vegetable knives the trio had swiped, took him all night to get an edge back on them. Of course, everyone ignores his grumblings. Uh, the trio makes suggestions for defense, a Dibbin army, send them to bed with no supper or breakfast, scrub their ears, spank them a few times for no reason! Uh, the boys, of course, fall quiet as Sister Serena mentions how, oh, she won't spank anyone without reason. In fact, she's looking for three naughty Dibbins who deserve a spanking right now for sneaking out of bed. Have these three seen them? And they all hastily denied that they were that trio. They were in bed all night. Uh, and, mm -hmm. yeah, um, don't... Hmm? Don't spank your children. Nope. We, we have a little discussion of this in the notes as well, because, like, I'm... I am not anti-spanking, but in my family, the way we were raised is that we only ever got spanked if we had either nearly endangered ourselves or we had been caught like really breaking the rules like we were always given several warnings like at least three warnings before it ever got to that point and i think my entire like my entire childhood i was only spanked like twice and each time it was my fault you know but then like you'll have like the older generations that don't think of it that way and like izzy points out like in western society like there's people who will just like spank their kids for the slightest thing and it's like no like that is a last resort like communication is broken down the kid won't listen to you I, I like gentle parenting is good and i'm glad like it is making more progress people are learning to talk and speak to their kids more but some kids do need a firmer thing than just words and I don't mean that like in a cruel way. It's just sometimes it, it's just like how as like sometimes adults can't just be spoken to reasonably. You know, people are complex. Lives are complex. But these poor kids making jokes about like, oh, we get spanked for no reason. It's just like, how often do you guys get spanked? Don't don't please don't just Probably arbitrarily spank kids. Yeah. Anyway, like, just don't arbitrarily. Yeah. Anyway, I, anyway, we we are getting to the the where I have a very long thing that I spent twenty minutes researching. <laughs> yes, and I want to hear your talk about it. So yeah, so Saxus is the first to spot a fire swinger, though he doesn't know uh, that that's what it is at first. An alarm, he yells out a warning to Sister Serena, who's in the weapons flight path. She dives to protect the Dibbins, and it saves her life and theirs as it shatters on the stone step where she'd been sitting. Uh, when another one comes over the wall, the adults leap into action. Dibbins are sent inside and the fighters scramble for the walls. Rufus Brush tries to take a shot at the grinning, leering rats, but his arrows fall short. He only watches another rat lobs a fire swinger over the wall. Thankfully, this one only lands in the pond. Flag takes the bow and arrow from him, but even his great strength can't get the arrows close enough. Spears and slingshots all fall short. The rats jeer and mock, amused by their attempts. The next projectile hits the half-built bell tower, setting its scaffolding on fire, and Sextus hurries to say they need to get a fire crew set up. And Kit was trying to figure out how the fuck they made these fire swingers, like, so that they could make it over the wall from that distance. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um. And so the thing is, is that they're using uh, medieval short bows. And short bows have a shorter shot distance than long bows. Uh, and medieval short bows especially have a shorter shot distance than modern short bows. Um... 
Also, it is implied that they seem to be firing straight at the rats rather than on a curve. Yeah. And when you fire at a curve, it actually goes farther and falls with a greater speed. Yeah, um, I feel this is also a case of like showing how these are like these are the Red Wallers who don't have experience with siege warfare. Exactly. Because um, they don't know to arc the arrows. Yeah. Uh, the rats are throwing the fire swingers in what I'm assuming is a high arc with a lot of good wind-up. Uh, the stone mm-hmm. at the end can take it farther. Uh, it doesn't move at the same speed as a bow, but it will go further because of the mm-hmm. amount of momentum. Centri- uh, cent- centrifugal force. Yep. Uh, I can't. I could not, when I was researching this, find the effective shot range for a medieval-style short bow because people were arguing way too fucking much in forum threads about weapons for me to even want to bother mm-hmm. to try and read that it, far um, and to be but, fair to them it does also vary depending on the user and how strong said user is yes and the the construction the material the time fucking if it's damp mm-hmm. it's the wind the wind yeah. uh modern uh uh short bows can fire between 50 to 150 yards uh we can extrapolate from there that medieval short bows probably around 50 yards you know yeah. Uh, yeah. The closest metric that I can use for the fire slingers is the hammer throw, which is a metal ball at the end of a short metal pole. Uh, that's got like a handle on the end for you to throw, like hold on to it while you spin and then throw. It's a uh, lot of fun a to hammer, watch. Yeah, a hammer throw averages between fifty to eighty meters, which is fifty-four to eighty-seven yards. Uh, so depending on the stones, how many spins these rats are doing to gain momentum, they can easily hit over the abbey walls with the fire slingers and stay out of range of the short bows and javelins yes i did spend 20 minutes researching this um and the rats are always shown to have more strength than the mice and like some of the Mm -hmm. other creatures at redwall uh so because they are bigger so yeah they are bigger uh and again if you get enough of a good enough wind up like, you can just yeet these things pretty far. Like, if you ever have a chance, I cannot recommend going to a Highland Games more, or, or highly enough, because Highland Games are a hoot and a holler and a good time, watching a bunch of big burly guys yeet stuff that people should be yeeting around. It's a lot of fun. It's very fun. God, um, like, log tosses, just... There's something about watching a big burly guy just pick up a telephone pole and chuck it. It's, it's very good. So come noon, the dibbons are tr- uh, that are trapped inside the abbey are restless. They whine, they complain, they're generally acting like bored kids because it's warm in there and they want to be in the pond. And then a fire swinger hits the main door and startles them back into behaving. Uh, Mother Mellis gives them candy chestnuts to help them further settle down. Uh, outside the wall, Graypatch eats and gloats. He mocks Big Fang, saying his brains will get them inside by that time tomorrow. Big Fang just grinds his teeth, biding his time. Back in the walls, the firefighters are fucking worn out. The North Wicker Gate almost gets taken out by a fire slinger. Uh, Saxis trips and falls flat while others are running to stop the next fireball. And while laying still for a moment, he hears a tap on said gate. Uh, listening, he overhears the trio of hairs on the other side. Recognizing that no rat laughs like Han Rosie's loud whoops, he opens the gate to let them in. Yeah, like, uh, it's just, you can feel his, his, how tired he is. Like, this poor, this poor kid, um, just, he rests him, he rests a moment with his scorched face against the grass. Just how tired this poor kid is. He's so tired. Then, he's doing you don't suppose they've the bolly well gone to bed. What? 
Hardly, old chap. After all, they are under invasion, you know. Imagine sleeping through a fire swinger attack. Whoa! Discord cut you went right out with that. <laughs> There's a spike no. in my audio there. Watch out. <laughs> I yeah. forgot to lean back. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, considering the fact that my volume has been turned up really high for most of this recording, <laughs> I'm going to have to do a lot of, like, uh, equalizing on the audio. That's okay, though. Okay. So, come evening. The four friends, Mariel and co, clear the dunes to come upon a breathtaking ocean sunset. Would you like to read it since it made you hungry? Certainly. Yeah, like as I was reading this last night, I'm just like, why is this making more hungry than half the descriptions of the feasts? <laughs> a long rocky beach lay beneath them, lapping upon... Uh, let me start that over, please. Yep, 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 yep. A long rocky beach lay beneath them. Lapping up to the shore, the rippling waves broke in a dark blue cascade, glittering red as the setting sun caught the sea, turning it to an iridescent green midway, which faded to purpley black on the horizon. The huge crimson half-circle sank slowly to, into the west, throwing up gold and umber shadows on the undersides of long cloud layers with cream tops. Dandan and Dury had never seen the great waters before. They stared at the magnificent spectacle, awestruck by the immensity of sea and sky. Or sky and sea. Just the colors, the way he describes it. I don't know why, but I was reading that and I'm just like, ooh, that sounds yummy. I want to eat that scenery. <laughs> Literally want to chew the scenery. Nom, 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 nom. <laughs> Dandan and Dury are overwhelmed by the vastness of the water in front of them and need a moment to gather themselves. Uh, Understandable. They, they get down among the giant rocks strewn along the shore and meet a quaint, if eccentric, dormouse named Bobo. Bob or Bobo. 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 Named Bobo. Uh, he invites them up to his home, a cave in one of the great towering rocks. Bobo's home is strewn with various sea-related things, driftwood, nets, and so on. Uh, he gives the other shrimp and sea cabbage stew with turnips. Dury nearly sits on a silent, skittish little newt, and Bobbin introduces them as Furl. Says he rescued them after they washed in on a high tide, and they don't talk much, but they're a great listener. Uh, he shares a little dandelion and wild barley water with the others. Dury wants the recipe, and Bobbin tells him all in due time. First, they have to li uh, listen to his story of how he ended up there, and then they all have to tell him their story before they leave. Uh, he was an ore slave on a rat a sea rat ship since before he could remember, and of course the captain of the ship was Gavul. His ore partner, a vole, had died at some point during a storm, so Gavul had them both thrown overboard. They were still chained together, and that is what saved Bobo's life. You put Bobbin. Bobbin. Yeah, I did. Sorry. Bobbo's. Bobbo's life. The chains in the vole's body had gotten caught on the same rock that he now lived in and kept him out of the ocean once the tide had gone down. Uh, he buried the vole and made his home among the rocks. Uh, he attempted to go inland but got lost in the swamp and luck had brought him back to the rocks so the rocks he made his home. The other three go to sleep at his urging but Mariel is well, far too alert for that. Excuse me. Mariel is far too alert for that. She uh, questions him about Gabool, then kindly shares the story of how she and her friends had arrived there. I like Bobo. I do too. Or Bobo. I keep saying yeah. Bobo. I mean Bobo. I like Bobo. Bobo. Yeah. He is delightful. Like, he's just... 
he's this this lone like this lonely lonely fellow who just wants some company, but he's he's good natured. He's not sour. He's not bitter. He's just like, oh, cool friends. You know, I'm happy. I'm gonna be a good guest. I'm gonna get to hear a story. I'm gonna get to help these people out. And I like the newt is 100% like just his friend. Like the little guy is like, hello, I've been traumatized. I'm not talking anymore, but this mouse is nice. So I'm just going to live here now. I just live here now and he feeds me. We're yep. good. Yep. The next morning dawns bright and cheerful. Dandan is first up and he's greeted by, you spelt bo- uh, Bobo wrong again. Put Bobbin. <sighs> you put Bobbin. Uh, who's got water for washing and food for eating. Dandan wakes the others up with a splash of water after he's washed up. Uh, Mero reveals that he did it again. <laughs> Bob I, I think it might be. I think it might have been. I think this is Google autocorrect at this point because because I don't see how I could have. I was reading Babo. Yeah. Uh, so Mero I'm pretty sure this is Google. It does that. It yeah. really does do that. It's very. You know, you can turn that off, right? Yeah, I just keep forgetting to do it. Sorry. <laughs> like you're going down and looking now. Uh, Mariel reveals that Babo can help with the last bit of the riddle quest. He knows where the swallow who cannot fly south is. And being an agreeable creature, we'll take them to it. So he leads them through the maze of rocks to a hulking, massive spire of stone that almost looks like a creature hunched on the shore with its back to the water that shelters a tide pool at its eastern side. And I love it when Brian gets to just, like, this is another part where, like, the description feels so real to me. Um, let's see. Okay. His bitch ass can't do this to me from the grave. He led them on a southerly track through the twisting, winding canyons, keeping up a surprisingly lively pace, now disappearing into the shadowed recesses and materializing into the bright sunlight. Sometimes they crunched upon small pebbles other times pattered across damp sand, occasionally splashing through sun-warmed shallow pools. Like, that makes me think of the tide pools along the coast so much that, like, I can smell the ocean, I can hear the waves, I can just, like, I know how this feels and it's making me miss, like, getting to go to the beach. I'm not a fan of the ocean, but I am a fan of the beach. I love the ocean. Put me in it. <laughs> it will consume me. <laughs> well, I'll go to the ocean! <laughs> ah! Anyway. Uh, hidden in the pool, wedged between rocks, is a pretty metal swallow. Um, Bobo had found it one day while fishing. Uh, he tried to get it out by fishing, but it was too smooth. Uh, and he won't send Furl down. Not after Furl lost his tail to a great shelled creature with claws like vices. Won't allow his friend to face that again. Uh, his tail's them... only just grown back, after all. Exactly. Uh, he shows them the creature by throwing a little bit of bait into the water. Sure enough, a huge blue and black lobster darts out to grab the bait and retreat. And the others agree, it is a terrible thing. To which I got a little snarky because poor um, Dandan Blanche is here. And I very gently snarked about, like, how can you tell if he's snarking if his face is covered in fur? And how can you he tell if him... he's blanching? Yeah, blanching. And um, Izzy makes a very good point here. Uh, it's the ears and the paws. It's where all the pink is. Yeah. Very good Especially because of, of like how young they are. Uh, so Mariel <laughs> sets her jaw. She has to get that sparrow. Uh, Danon says he'll go in with her, uh, and so does Tarkin. She tells Tarkin, no. Uh, she needs him and Duri to help her and Dandon from the shore. Uh, Duri is more than happy with this arrangement, because <laughs> he 
He does not want to go in there. Yeah, Pulls he's like, some steam by joking about not wanting to scare his uncle with only half of himself returning home. And teasing Tarkin about how upset Han Rosie would be if he'd returned without an ear and a nose. Tarkin heartily agrees. Would it, would it be inappropriate to share that story that I shared in the notes? No, I don't think it is a thing that you can say on the podcast. <laughs> okay, I didn't think so either. <laughs> it but, is funny. But... It is funny. Don't share it on the podcast. Yeah, I'm going to cut this out. Okay, thank you. That it... That's why I asked, but uh, to loop back to what is allowed to be said. Okay, a little beat here. Hooter and a lug. But the hooter and the lug. This has made me giggle like a hooter <laughs> and a lug. Okay. And Tarquin just being like, yeah, no, she'd she'd perish. <laughs> my, my handsome face. Oh, hellish. <laughs> Uh, so they plan until noon. Once ready, they gather up as much rope and food as they can. They basically just clean uh, Babo's like, cave out of all of its shrimp <laughs> and fish. Uh, the plan is simple. Feed the lobster enough uh, that it stops eating. Go down. Mariel gets the swallow while Danden protects her. And then come back up. Uh, they just throw shrimp and fish into the water and so the lobster stops coming out for it and there's just like a pile of it mm-hmm. in front of where the lobster is. And Bobo mm-hmm. gives one last bit of instructions. Once they have the swallow, tug the ropes and they'll be pulled up. They see the lobster going after them, they'll pull them up, swallow or no. And with that, the book ends with Meryl and Dandon slipping into the cool blue world of the tide pool. I- and I like how like the end of this book how each story arc got its own little chapter to wrap up and leave the cliffhanger for the last part of the book. Um, It's good. It's very good. Like everything is really well connected in this book. Um, Like the, the sea rats are all connected. We have like, we know that Marielle's going to eventually meet up with uh, Ron blade. We know that Belle's going to end up at Redwall somehow. Like, it's all very well connected. Like, again, like I said, I don't even think we can count Romblade as a C plot because he's really just a branch off of the A plot that's going to mm-hmm. reconnect to the A plot. Exactly. It's good shit. I'm excited yeah. for the next part. Again, we are going to cut the next part into two. Yep. Uh, so there will be two separate recordings for the last part of the book because it's almost fucking half of the book. Mm-hmm. And we're not doing what we did with the first one. No, which God, was a we keep doing this. We're four books in and we keep doing it. We're changing it up now. We're fixing it. We've learned. Sure have. (laughs) Anyway. We don't have seasons, but I feel like the big break that we took uh, between uh, Matameo and Mariel could have been like a season break. Absolutely. It's been like a year since we started. Well, not just that, but like uh, art fights coming up. So I'm definitely like my brain is going to be gotta draw, gotta draw, gotta draw, draw, draw. So... Yeah, good news. We have a bunch of shit we can put out during exactly. this month. So, our questions for the end. What was your we- uh, favorite weird, I'm gonna just, not just Abbey food, any of it, weird food in this book? Nothing really caught my attention this time around. Nothing that uh, I personally would like to eat, but that, that mushroom and like the forest salad that Thunderbeak puts together for them. I was like, oh, that's really sweet. That's kind of neat. You I know. want the shrimp and sea cabbage stew. You would. I knew you were going to say that. I like shrimp. Shrimp! 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 Heaven! Now! Shrimp! Heaven! Now! So from Serpedon, uh, Ben, <laughs> this is a, a, a question specifically asked to attack you. Specifically. We, very specifically. Do we think the beards of Gabul and Joseph are attached to their chins, 
or just really luxurious chest hair. I mean, the way they're described, they're definitely, like, on these guys' chins. Like, it's definitely meant to be... both? Probably. With the way, like, mice and rat anatomy, I could see it being both. I'm just very distressed at the thought. I'm like, why do I have to think about this? Ah! For reasons. (laughs) Ah! Yeah. I think just... I think it's a case of, like, they just blend together. Like, it's this one really big ruff that starts at the base of the neck and, like, goes down to the chest. Just so much floof. So All much fluff. floof. Uh, I'm checking to see if we've got any other questions while we're going through. Okay. Just and to like, be sure. Yeah, like, the the one question about... um. I mentioned it in the Abbey of Planning, but Sarpedon had also asked another question about... um. It's pinned in the book, um, book uh, discussion. But I think uh, we yeah, answered yeah, yeah. I've got it. I've got it right here. Um, did we answer that last time? I think we I did. Don't think we did. All right. Well, what was it again? It was. Um... Yeah, because he asked it in May. Okay. So, what is the question? Uh, so, you know how Meryl names her knotted rope and how Martin's sword is officially called Rat Death, although no mm-hmm. one ever calls it that other than the, the dying abbot once? Do you think Brian was trying to make named weapons a thing and just gave up after that because I don't remember any others in the series? Also, the badger sword, Vermin Fate, in this book upon rereading. See, that's weird because I, I feel Ron like Blade's we... sword is called Vermin yeah. Fate, as we find out uh, yeah. in the next part of the book. Because I feel like we did answer this already because I remember talking about, like, um, how, like, in Arthurian legend, like, in a lot of old legends, uh, weapons are named. But Brian definitely, like, he he stops naming weapons after a while or it's not as important of a thing. Because of, like, again, like, he's very light on the world building in a lot of ways. And just naming yeah. the weapons, weapons that are never going to be seen again, doesn't really make a lot of sense. Yeah. So he just doesn't anymore and i don't think that's necessarily a bad thing either no it's not a bad thing it's it's like weapons don't have to have names like yes a lot of like ancient weapons had names but there's also a lot of ancient weapons that didn't a lot of times names for weapons uh are just very personal kind of the Mm -hmm. same way that people name their cars (laughs) yeah um well Um, like another another fantasy series i really like like one of the books focuses on like an arms uh teacher and if he catches his students naming their practice weapons, he will, like, if they're weapons owned by the the Sal or, like, the, the nation, he takes them and melts them down to be reforged into new swords. Because he's like, don't name a weapon. Like, a weapon is a tool, and you are here to learn to survive. Like, if I catch you naming a weapon, and it's not, like, a personal weapon that you own, I'm getting rid of it. Because you need to learn to use every kind of weapon that comes to hand. Like, just, like, it's really funny how, like, this author went out of their way to kind of poke fun at the tradition of, like, naming <laughs> weapons. Of, like, this one arms master being like, no, that's stupid. You're gonna get killed. Yeah. Uh, so, was there an animal that appeared that surprised you slash did an animal subvert expectations? The barn owl subverted expectations. <laughs> and the lizards in the swamp for just, like, they didn't do anything. They just kind of watched, like, huh. They were just there. Uh, yeah. And then the lobster kind of surprised me. I did, in fact, forget that that was there. 
I like how it's like the lobster is the dragon in this book because like if you think the about lizards it, like, the, were a fake out. The lizards were the fake out, and then the lobster came along like, "Hello, I am actually going to be terrifying." Ooh, snippety, snippety. What if what if the thing that's in the dungeons with Gabool is actually a lobster? It could be, but I still like the way Brian likes to write like big, like scary, strange creatures coming in. I still, I'm, I'm still putting my money on it being a scorpion. Yeah. Uh, Just what's your favorite? Yeah. No, yeah, we've already we've already talked about erasings. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what is your favorite part so far? Honestly, I really did enjoy that little tiny bit with um the owls just because it was such a funny little respite from the gloom and them being in danger and then like just these owls show up they're like hey we're we're rough and tumble and then you know they stop and they help these kids out and then they just go along their merry way like we've done our job have a good life bye 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 yeah that was very very good i did like uh i like everything to do with babo just all Mm -hmm. of it it's very good. Very. I don't think we got any other questions because I checked Twitter and we didn't have any. And I know we didn't get any on Reddit because we never get any on Reddit. Nope. Uh, they, if only, they, if... they only come to complain after the episode's over. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, if you're listening to us uh, and you're from Reddit and you aren't part of our Discord, you don't follow us on Twitter or Tumblr, on the posts when I post new episodes, feel free to ask questions. I even ask for you guys to do that. Do it. Ask us questions or give us discussion points. We want to talk about stuff. We want to talk with you guys. Do it, cowards. Uh, or join the Discord and you can talk to us directly. <laughs> uh, we did get a follower on Reddit. Oh, cool. I didn't know you could do Hello. that, but apparently you can. Um, it makes sense. And I don't use Reddit. I Neither literally, I. I've talked about this before. I only use it for this. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't use Reddit either, so. No. I am the one who controlled the Reddit account. It me. Yes. Uh, anyway, so thank you for listening to Abbey Archives. We are grateful that you lent us your ears and we hope you enjoyed your time with us. Uh, I've been Izzy. You can find me on Twitter at the Sean Deer. You can find me on Tumblr at lots of deer. Uh, you can find uh, the other podcast that I'm on uh, Hope's Hearth Pod at Hope's Hearth Pod, both on Tumblr and Twitter, uh, which is a solar hope punk actual play podcast in space. Um, not always like in space. Like we're in a spacefaring universe, <laughs> but a lot of times their games are set on specific planets in specific settings because we can. Why the fuck not? Um, you know, whatever. Um, we just did. By the time this comes out, it's gonna already be out, and hopefully, I will have the vods up on YouTube already. But we did a charity stream for Seattle Pride. Uh, recently. Uh, and if the VODs are still on Twitch, go watch them on the Hearthside Enclave Twitch, twitch.tv forward slash Hearthside Enclave, or watch them on YouTube, which does not have a, like, proper URL, but if you search Hearthside Enclave, we should come up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I My can't turn. think of... Anything else? Yes. <laughs> and this has been Kit. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Tumblr at Kitsy in a box, all one word. Um, 
I do a little clothes species called the Kitsunday. They are little foxes with dessert themed tails. I do little custom orders of them. They're cheap, they're fun to make. Uh, so if you ever wanna order one, just drop me a line on Twitter or Tumblr, or I've also got like Affinity, I've got DeviantArt, I've got an Inkblot account. Um, also, I am so ready for Art Fight this year, where I am also Kitsy in a box on Art Fight, but this will probably come out like after Art Fight's over. So. Or like halfway through. Yeah, so if you want to, come find me and fight me. I put up my And even if it's Sona, like so. after the fact, like go follow Kit and me on Art Fight. I'm at uh, Sean Deere on Art Fight as well. Yeah, uh, and we next year we'll fight you. Fight. Yeah, we enjoy yeah. doing Art Fight. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. I'm probably not going to be uh, participating a whole lot this year because I've got other shit I have to focus on. Mm -hmm. But I'll be there and I will probably like respond to a few. Yeah. Um, and you guys can see my fun characters. Yeah, uh, and... You can find us both at Abbey Archives on Twitter and Tumblr, as we said at the top of the podcast. Yep. Um, again, make sure to keep an eye out on the Hearthside Enclave Twitch channel for our uh, playthrough of the Lost Legends of Redwall. Mm-hmm. Super excited to start that. Um, so, may your hearth be warm and your heart be merry. From us to you at Redwall Abbey. Woo, we did it! <laughs> Clap time. Clap time. Okay. We managed to get that in like almost exactly two hours. Yeah, we did good today. Yeah, we've seen our time frame. You want to do I... it at the 55. Okay. I'm proud of us. Also, good timing because Angela and the kiddos are here. I need to use the bathroom. Yep. listening. If you like this podcast and want to help keep it going, please consider donating to our coffee, linked in the description below. Follow our Twitter and Tumblr at Abbey Archives and join our Discord. This podcast is part of Hearthside Enclave, and some other shows you might like are Hope's Hearth, a solar hope punk actual play podcast, and Post-Apocalyptic News Radio, a Fallout-inspired audio drama.